Hi, everybody. George here. Uh, I'm excited to share the news with our listeners that thanks to people just like you, we're being recognized by the Podcast Awards in not one but two categories, People's Choice and TV and Film. Uh, The nice thing about the Podcast Awards is that the first stage is grassroots-based, so while it's awesome to be nominated, we want to win, which means we need you to vote. Here's how. First, you go to podcastawards.com, and right at the top is a link that says click me to nominate my favorite podcasts. Register your name and email so that you can be counted, and that'll take you to the actual voting page. People's Choice Awards are right at the top. Scroll down to the T section, because we're under the instead of best, which is not perfect formatting, but whatever. Click us and do the same for TV and film, which is further down the page. It's nice and simple. Just save your votes. That's it. You're done. Tell your friends to vote, too. We'll keep people updated, but spread the word and keep your fingers crossed and enjoy the episode. Thanks. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And tonight's guest is the editor-in-chief and creator of The Pop Break, Bill Bodkin, is here. How's it going, Bill? Well, you know, coming off the old Porkchop Express of everyday life these (laughs) days, uh, it's been good. I'm wearing my Baja homage to Great American Hero, Jack Burton. Have myself uh, tying on a 16-in bag right now. Feeling pretty good. You know, there's a pandemic going on. We need a nice light movie to talk about. And so I'm really excited to talk about this one. Bill, the movie you picked today is Big Trouble in Little China. Yes, it is. Ordinarily, I we, we talk about your history with horror first, and then we start talking about the movie. But I want to get this out of the way, because I already hear the people bitching and moaning about how this is not a horror movie. And so I want to get that out of the way first. Yeah. Obviously, this is a blend of genres. I will not say that there's not comedy and action aspects to it, but there are a ton of horror elements in it, like some otherworldly supernatural shit. There's a ton of body horror stuff in it. It's definitely more on the Gremlins 2 side of the spectrum, but both Russell and Carpenter refer to it as a ghost story. So as far as I'm concerned, this absolutely fits the bill as a horror movie. Oh, I 100% agree. It, there are definitely, I remember and probably way jumping out of your format. There are, if you're a little kid, there are some things in this that will absolutely scare the, yeah, it scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. Yeah, I totally get that. The problem is because it's not consistently scary, because the horror elements kind of are a, a sousant on it, it, oh, it get, makes it French in this one. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It makes it that much scarier when the horror elements do come into play because you're not prepared for it like you are with a more traditionally structured horror movie. Yeah, I mean, when some wild-eyed eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the bed, <laughs> taps the back of your favorite head up against the bathroom wall, looks you crooked in the eye and asks you if you paid your dues, you stare <laughs> that sucker back in the eye and say, yes, sir, check is in the mail. And if anyone's wondering, yes, I do have a list of quotes just in front of me. <laughs> Just well, to read hey, off to George at any point. One of my favorite parts of this movie is just the bluster and the like insane quotes that Jack Burton, who's Kurt Russell, manages to pull out in this movie. So uh, uh, let's talk about you a little bit. Are you typically a, a quote-unquote horror fan? I'm more of a... So when I was young, movies like this, and I'm going to tell you this one movie that scared the hell out of me, and you will look at me, you will just like look at me via podcast and be like, what are you talking about? The opening sequence of Willow, (laughs) when the woman is running with the child and those wolves are chasing her. Sure. So I'll, you know, 
you weren't even a glimmer in your parents' eyes when Willow came out. But I was probably like between five and six years old, maybe seven. I remember being sick and watching that, and it scared me. And I remember seeing like Freddy Krueger hotline commercials back in the late 80s because hotlines were a big thing. Sure. And that scared me. So it wasn't until I can even remember watching The Sixth Sense like in high school, like with hands over my eyes at points. But that movie genuinely, sorry, not to jump in, but I watched that movie for the first time like last year because I was like, what, oh, what, I already what, know the what, twist. What, 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 what? It's in, well, first off, it's a horror movie, sort of, in Philadelphia. Yeah, I mean, that's like, that is like, that that just seems like in your lifeblood there. Yeah, it's my bread and butter. But the problem is, is that I was like, oh, I already know the twist, so I'm not going to get anything out of it. And first of all, not only was that incorrect, I thought it was an absolutely spectacular movie. I was totally wrong. M. Night, I apologize for doubting you. But also, I was genuinely shocked at how frightening parts of that movie were. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. So I, my point is that I understand where a young Bill Bodkin might get a uh, get frightened by it. By young, you mean like seventeen, eighteen years old? But okay. Um, In the grand uh, scheme of things, that's young. But uh, it wasn't until I started dating my wife thirteen years ago, and she is a big horror fan. I mean, her great her grandmother let her watch Children with the Corn when she was like eight, <laughs> like, and so she's all in on horror all the time. And so I kind of was not so slowly brought into, hey, I'm going to watch this movie. You're going to watch it with me. <laughs> right. You only have a certain level of control over that at some point. Yeah. And so the first one of the first horror movies we ever watched together, like she showed me stuff like I never really watched Jaws, watched that, loved it. Never really watched Poltergeist before the first one, uh, the Craig T. Nelson one, I should say, not the Sam Rockwell one, if anyone's thinking. Right. Um, loved that. There was other movies that I saw. I was like, oh, these are really good. But she, one of the first ones we ever watched was um, Paranormal Activity. And so we were dating, and that movie freaked the hell out of me. And I can always remember, like, we were, like, crashing at my, like, I mean, we were still dating. We are at my apartment down the Jersey Shore. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, I'm just, like, laying awake just thinking of this movie. And all of a sudden, she starts, like, talking in her sleep and then start, then just <laughs> rolls over towards me and goes, <laughs> and I was just like, oh, Jesus Christ, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. This is the end. <laughs> um, but ever since then, like, I, you know, I've watched a lot of the, the crazy series and stuff. Like, I've watched a lot of the paranormal activities and the happening, not the happening, oh, gosh, it's, like, the, the conjuring, sorry, and that whole universe and all the James Wan stuff. So some of the stuff I've become desensitized to where I'm just like, oh, this isn't that scary. So, but I will like appreciate a good horror or a good suspense film more than I would say 14 years ago before I met my wife. Am I going out of my way to be like, Ooh, horror movie. I want to go see that. No, but I'll like go see, I wanted to see it. I went to see it. We saw us, not a traditional horror movie, but still very frightening. Invisible man. I'll go to see it if she wants to see it, but like I'm not seeking horror out in general, unless Bruce Campbell's in it. Completely different story. <laughs> because yeah, so if there was any outlier to what I just said, it was the Evil Dead movies. When I was in college, much like many college students, definitely fell in love with the Evil Dead, mostly due to discovering Sam Raimi through Spider-Man, the Spider-Man movies. Sure. And and so like Army, and the first one I saw of that group was Army of Darkness. So it's like much like Big Trouble in China, like a perfect. Like appetizer 
an amuse-bouche, as they would say. <laughs> oh, um, we're getting French in here. <laughs> I watched Top Chef for a couple of years. <laughs> so it's like, uh, you know, I, I, I got really into that. And so watching the first two Evil Dead films, I'm like, I can appreciate there's a lot of humor in here, too, to alleviate my scaredy catness. You know. Yeah, it definitely, I mean, between uh, Big Trouble in Little China and the Evil Dead franchise, it definitely seems like you have a type in terms of uh, protagonists. Oh, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> blustery, blustery men. <laughs> because that's kind of what I am. And uh, also, like, the, ho- the new Halloween stuff. Like, every, like I didn't love Halloween 2 with Rob Zombie, but, like, the new yeah. Halloween stuff, like, I, get, I can get with that, too. So... Horror is like like in the middle for me. It's not like I don't think there's a movie genre where I'm like, oh, I, I don't want to watch that. Outside of maybe a couple, you know, three and a half hour costume dramas, because I'm just like, I just can't get through it, you know, because I'm just like, for like right now, my I have a I'm a dad, so I have finite movie time, right? So I gotta I gotta get the greatest hits in there. <laughs> Definitely horror is like in the middle for me. So if it's if if it looks good and people are talking about it, I'll watch it. But I'm not seeking it out myself. I'm curious what you think about this sort of newer wave of horror, then, and if it's if moving away from sort of the blood and guts grime of the hostels and the saws and and stuff like that. Um, and even sort of moving away from the sinisters and conjurings and paranormal activity kind of supernatural stuff um, into these more uh, esoteric art house horror movies, do you think that that makes it more accessible to people who are not really into horror? Or do you think that that makes it less because it's kind of moving into that like weirder period piece area. When you're talking about that, do you mean some more like the A24 type movies like uh, Hereditary, Midsommar, like The Witch and stuff like that? That like oscilloscope. Yes. Some of these like smaller movies that definitely have kind of more layers to them than something uh, that might have come out 10 years ago. Um, I, I, you know, for me, like, uh, maybe I'm not the best person to ask because, like, I will go for more, like, I like a good, like, if you're going to be creative with something with horror or a creative with film in, gen- in general, like, I will go for that even if it might not be in my comfort zone as opposed to, like, hereditary, no, not sorry, hereditary, um, Insidious 7, you know? <laughs> Sure. Which I just like, you know, like I could watch an Insidious movie or any one of those movies and just be like, sure, cool, you know. Uh, except when it comes to like kids, like there was that La Llorona that came out. Like, it's not a good movie, but like anytime the like, kids are in peril, especially as a dad, I'm always like, eh, I don't need that yeah, adds, in my life. Adds another, yeah. <laughs> but it's just like those movies, like to me, are just like potato chip horror movies. Like, yeah, you're going to mm-hmm. put them on in the background. Like, I don't really care. But uh, I would be more interested to see something like, and I have been, it's just, again, parental time sure. to watch horror when you don't have a five-year-old going, what's that? No, <laughs> you know, we made the mistake of Stranger Things season three. Oh boy. Watching that and, there, and all the stuff in the hospital. And she usually doesn't pay attention. Like, you know, you give her like any other kid, she's like reading a book or she's most likely watching the tablet or something like that, watching cartoons. And it's just like, all of a sudden looks up, she's like... Dad, what is that? And they're like, okay, can't watch this. So I like, I am all in on highly creative horror movies. Like, if it's going to be something that's like original, something that has like a, like, like an auteur like type of director who's right. like definitely putting their own stamp on something, or definitely 
playing with a lot of ideas and a lot of visuals and stuff like that. Like I'm all for creative directors. So I would more apt to watch that. I don't know if everyone else would be like that if they're not into horror. Like I love, like if you're like, well, there's a new Christopher Nolan movie coming out. I'm like, boom there. So it's like, if you're saying like, Oh, Ari, I forgot his last name. Aster. Ari Aster. I was going to say Ari Hester for some reason, but then I'm like, no, it's Devin Hester who played for the bears. (laughs) Uh, Help me win a couple fantasy football games, guys. And oh, yeah. uh, um, so, you know, Ari Aster, like, he comes out with something new. I'm like, oh, now everyone's talking about how good he is. I definitely want to check him out and what he's doing. Or, like, A24, like, when they released The Lighthouse, I'm like, ooh, that looks really, like, it's going to really mess with my head. But it's A24, man. They they don't mess around with the releases most of the time. So that could probably, I want to see that now. And I think that that sort of, passion for a director who has a vision and leaves their stamp on a movie definitely comes across in your pick for today. I mean, John Carpenter has come up several times in this podcast already, and that's no mistake. Oh, no. He is, I think, probably one of uh, America's greatest directors. And I mean, go doing this podcast has really given me a new appreciation for him. I was already a big fan, but really like going through his movies with a fine couth tome, or excuse me. Fine tooth tome. <laughs> Oh, Going through his movies with a fine tooth comb really, uh, it, it really lets you focus on kind of how granular he gets with the details and how tightly composed everything is, while still feeling loose and like he trusts his actors to bring something to the table as well. Did you ever watch uh, Vampires? Not yet. I have been hearing a lot about it. I oh saw that in the theater, and part of me still like, why did I see this in the theater? I was also was like. <laughs> 17 16 or 17 so it was like i had friends who were going but it's like but i remember because i i loved uh i grew up on john carpenter movies like yeah my dad like is he was a huge influence on my early and current film tastes like you know so it was always escape from new york whenever that was on a great one this was on but again because of like basically that big beast in big trouble little china that's what freaked me out and the eyeball <laughs> and the guy with the eyeball tongue that always freaked me out. But yeah, escape from New York was always a big one. And so John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, because like anything Kurt Russell was in my dad would watch. And then my mom would watch overboard all the time. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so it was always like that. I like John Carpenter to me. Anytime I would hear the name, I'd be like, wow. Yeah. John Carpenter did this. Like that's, it's going to be good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and it's so crazy to me that we have that feeling now, but, you know, I've talked about it with every uh, movie that we talked about with him. Critics always got it wrong with Carpenter. I mean, with this movie, so we'll start talking about the actual movie now. Uh, Ebert himself, you know, I feel like I always wind up using him as the example critic who got it wrong, which I think maybe says something about this pedestal that Ebert is on, <laughs> but... You know, he, he said that the special effects don't mean much unless we care about the characters who are surrounded by them. And I, I just it's th- this movie is the characters are so endearing because they're not perfect. And he, I just think that this sort of critical torpedoing of his work is remarkable in that he managed to transcend it for almost his entire career. Just, it's really an incredible feat that Carpenter managed to have the career he did, despite all the uh, pushback that he received from sort of the, the critical gatekeepers. Yeah, I mean, and this is also just like, 
I don't know what people were expecting. Like, it was just like, like you watch this movie. I remember taping, okay, here, date myself, taping this movie off TNT. I think it was after a WCW Monday Nitro, which is wrestling. They used to have like the Nitro, like, it was like, here's the action movie after it. And it was that. I remember taping it because I was big into like martial arts movies. I want to say this is like 95, 96. So it was a bit like Jackie Chan was getting big. So I was watching a lot of Jackie Chan stuff, Super Cop and, and whatnot. And I saw this and I'm like, oh, I, well, I like Kurt Russell. I remember this movie sort of let me tape it. And I remember watching it like as a early teenager. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, this is hilarious. Like, how could and I remember reading some of the reviews at the time on it. And I'm like, how could anyone take this movie so seriously? This is all larger than life characters dealing with the most insane comic pulpy comic book shit like how can you like judge it on that level it's like oh we have to of course you care about these characters they're insanely fun they're <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. much fun even kim cattrall who's like supposedly you know playing the straight woman in this is right. so funny in this oh absolutely every time that she like enters a room and she's like don't worry it's just me gracie law <laughs> like, you know, she's like it's something about you it's like and i always love her and her cut russell have such a great you know chemistry is like i know it's the thing with your face you know it's just <laughs> like which i have used so many times in real life it's uh, and also random fact that richard burton the great thespian his daughter is in this kate wow. kate burton who plays margo the reporter who oh, i well, just go. discovered that probably last year when i was watching it and I was like, oh, well, who, who is she? Because she was in something else recently. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. And then out of the blue, I'm looking. I'm like, oh, my God, she's Richard Burton's daughter. No way. Oh, so, no, I didn't even know what I was watching that possibly could have even made me think of that. But I just looked it up and I was like, oh, <laughs> it was something. It was something. All right. <laughs> that's crazy. I didn't know that either. And this I mean, this movie, it's the star power in it is like classic carpenter where he reuses a lot of the same actors that he's used in previous films kurt russell is jack burton in it dennis dunn is wang chi victor wong is en shen dennis uh dennis dunn and victor wong you may recognize from our prince of darkness episode obviously kurt russell was in the thing kim cattrall is gracie law and uh james hong is david lopan james hong who's still going he's like he's he is like a national treasure character actor Mm -hmm. because if you just look at what he's been in throughout his career it's absolutely bonkers he started back in 1956 doing a voice in godzilla king of monsters i mean like he he has been in tons of things runner chinatown all great stuff and i mean he's he's been holding it down for years and years and years and of course his uh, his big role his big role kung fu panda where he played uh you know, Jack Black's Panda's dad. Of course. Everyone's favorite James Hong role is, is of course, from that. I will say... I do like he, Kung Fu Panda, so... I, I think Kung Fu Panda is okay. I haven't seen two or three. But, I mean, just just, uh, just watch the first one. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, hey, it's, I feel like it's hard to go wrong with a Jack Black movie. And um, he is also in Sleeping Dogs, uh, one of my favorite games of the PS3 generation. So, oh, I forgot about that game. Yeah. Yeah. So he really is. Uh, he's all over the place. So uh, James Hong, good for you. Goddamn right. This movie, though, had a pretty tumultuous past, even just getting it made. 
Oh, yeah. The, the first version of the screenplay was written by Gary Goldman and David Z. Weinstein, who were inspired by the sort of new wave of martial arts films that had these like crazy special effects and were shot against a background of Chinese mysticism. But there was uh, their first version of the movie was actually set in 1880 with Kurt Russell as a cowboy who was coming into town. And I'm curious what you think about that idea. I mean, I mean, we've all seen Tombstone, right? Hell yeah. It's so they asked and answered, Your Honor. <laughs> but I mean it would have been it would have been amazing. I mean, like Kurt Russell to me is one of those guys who's just like like maybe I'm biased because I grew up on a Kurt Russell fan because my dad was one, but like the dude can he's a chameleon. He can do whatever, man, and it's uh he's great and he shows that off a lot here too, especially in the brothel scene, which is one of my all time favorite scenes of this film. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's very hard for a good actor to play a bad actor, and uh, boy, he really nails it in that scene. I I agree. I think that it could have been fun. I think that – I feel like it's hard to pull off a comedic period piece like that. It is, definitely. It worked better – the end product of what they produced was way better than doing a Western because I think it would have gone into like wacky, zany, ridiculous – yeah, we would have probably wound up with something closer to uh, Shanghai Noon than uh, Big Trouble with China. Yikers. Um, yeah. So so Paul Menashe bought the script, had them do a rewrite, but it still wasn't working. And he said that it was because of this setting. And so 20th Century Fox, who was producing, wanted them to do another major rewrite, updating it to modern times. And both of those writers refused. They said that this it was just not their idea. And so Fox had W.D. Richter, who is the director of Buckaroo Banzai. One of my all-time favorite movies. Absolutely great. And he was also um, a a well-respected script doctor at the time as well, not only uh, a director. And so he took a crack at it and basically threw away everything except the Lopan story. And I definitely feel that kind of Buckaroo Banzai, Flash Gordon-y type flair to the character of Jack Burton. Oh, 100%. I I did not know he was involved in that. I was just talking about Buckaroo Bounce with uh, Pop Break's managing editor, Al Manorino, who was just like, oh, Kevin Smith was, yeah, I guess, was was toying with doing an adaptation, whether it was a film or a TV series of Buckaroo Bounce. And mm. um, I remember watching it in a freshman year religion class, Buckaroo Bounce. The teacher's like, I want you to write an essay on how you would explain religion to an alien. To give you an example of what aliens are, here's my favorite movie, Buckaroo Bounce. And I'm like, that, I'm like, first off, that is the worst segue <laughs> yeah. for an all boys Catholic high school religion class to ever talk about religion. Here's but an example I, of aliens. Here's <laughs> aliens. It's set in New Jersey. I'm like, great, cool. I'm like, Jeff Goldblum's a cowboy, sold. Um, yeah, but it definitely has that kind of pulpy nature that that Buckaroo had. Definitely, and, and had that like they had that same. Buckaroo and Jack definitely had that same, like, bravado, well, like, kind of, like, leader quality, but Jack definitely had the more, you know, all-American doofus bravado. Yeah, absolutely, and it's also interesting that this movie kind of works as a subversion as well of those kind of things, because in terms of specifically Flash Gordon and Buckaroo Banzai, they kind of have this, the world kind of warps around them kind of feeling where things just happen positively for them you know it all works out in the end and a lot of the time it's because they manage to become the hero somehow and 
with this, he Jack Burton still has that bluster and that flair, but it's almost never him or on purpose when it is him. It's all it's all in the reflexes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely it is, and it, this is not to take away from his many accomplishments, but <laughs> <laughs> I think that we're hard-pressed to admit that uh, it's all on purpose. And I, I think that's something, like, maybe why, again, why critics didn't get it, that Jack Burton is the is a subversion of John Wayne and the John Wayne archetype. Mm-hmm. And kind of 1980s action heroes, even ones that Kurt Russell played, like Snake Plissken, the army of one who just, like you were saying, like, manages to save the day i mean this is a decade where it was rambo and anything arnold schwarzenegger did and anything stallone did like like rambo um uh, like <laughs> and later van damme and mel gibson and bruce willis and like and we were just coming off like charles bronson and and, and death wish right and here's you know snake plissken basically making fun of all that and i think people just didn't get it because we were mm-hmm. so we knew Carosa could be funny, but we didn't get that this was really playing on that I hate using the word, but trope of the red blooded army of one super testosterone fueled hero. Yeah. Absolutely. And it works perfectly. I mean that one is a little more straight faced of a satire of it and definitely works, but this one, I think it's a really fun way to pay homage and still subvert that kind of, uh, as you put it, archetype, trope, whatever you want to call it. Archetype um, is such a better word. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Fox wanted to give Richter full credit for writing this. And so they took Goldman and Weinstein off of the press releases. But the rules established by the WGA at the time to protect original writers made sure that they got the writing credit and Richter actually got an adaptation by credit. Carpenter was pretty pissed about this because he felt that Richter had done almost all the writing, but, you know, it is what it is. And he himself made his own additions to Richter's rewrites, including taking out some racism, strengthening the Gracie Law role because Richter and Kim Cattrall didn't really get along very well. So he kept trying to, like, write her role down. (laughs) And Carpenter had to eventually be like, maybe it's best if you just don't be on set. And he also just removed a few action sequences uh, sequences due to just budgetary constraints. Yep. And I mean, this budget, you know, I was I listened to the director's commentary uh, while I was watching this again, and he says that the budget was twenty million, which at the time huge. They were treating it, yeah, they were treating it like a big budget movie, and. For us, it doesn't seem like that much because it's been inflated by these huge blockbusters. But that is a pretty reasonable budget for a movie. And with that relatively big budget, the effects budget for this movie wound up being just under $2 million, which the head of the studio, uh, Boss Film Studios, who did the special effects, uh, Richard Edlund, said that that was barely adequate. And, you know, it's incredible what they managed to do with that. One of the most difficult effects, they said, was the Guardian, the spy for Lopan, this eyeball guy. Really an intense grotesquerie. (laughs) And, you know, it's floating and it's powered by several puppeteers and dozens of cables to control its facial expressions. And they literally had to create this special matting system designed specially for it. And... The, the fact that Carpenter always manages to make these uh, incredible practical effects work for his movies on these shoestring budgets is really incredible. And unfortunately, it wasn't enough. 
you know, between that critical torpedoing that I mentioned before and um, the hype for the upcoming aliens kind of just swallowed up Big Trouble. And even though testing, according to Carpenter, was through the roof, he just kept expecting ads and they never came. And so it wound up only grossing around $11 million, which is pretty incredible um, that it made barely half of its budget. Yeah, I was just doing a quick calculation. It, it, if you were looking at $20 million today, it would be like a $47 million budget, which if you look at the big a blockbuster movie today, it's still not bad. But it's like, yeah, they, uh, they really buried this movie because of that comedy and because it wasn't a, your traditional Carpenter film nor your traditional Kurt Russell film. And because, like we said at the top of the episode, it's, it defied and genre, really. They didn't know how to market this thing. Yeah, and I mean, it's really thanks to that kind of aftermarket and the indelible mark that this movie left on the Mortal Kombat franchise, oh. you know, with uh, Shang Tsung and Raiden. Things have kind of turned around for this movie. You know, it definitely takes up a little bit more of a place in the uh, cultural lexicon. But I want to talk about we, – we talked about it briefly off air, but uh, the threat of a remake starring The Rock or a sequel, excuse me. They, they have changed it to a sequel. But, but yeah, so I want, to, I want to see what you think about just the idea of them coming back to this world, you know, however many years later. It's tough, man. Like I don't think – I'm just going to take The Rock out of it for a second. I feel like unless it's Kurt Russell, fully committed – I don't think you should even attempt to remake it and even then or sequel it. And even then, I don't know. I've seen it where like, and and, and I don't have a concrete example. I just can't think of it off the top of my head. Like when cult classics get remade or rebooted or brought back, it's not, it usually doesn't work. Like evil dead got rebooted, but they went in a way more serious tone. So, that worked because they just didn't do like let's just remake it and make it funny again man this is not one you should touch to me it's like leave it where it is because i don't think they could really recapture that magic unless they tried doing that kind of ash versus the evil dead like stars did that series maybe it would work but like oh i don't know that's a tough one for me to see it and with the rock i like the rock obviously i'm a huge wrestling nerd i've been a fan for 31 years i generally like the rock in movies recently and i feel like he gets the joke like i feel like he is a fan and would understand the humor i don't know if he could portray it in a way that wouldn't come off like latter day schwarzenegger and stallone Mm -hmm. where everything was like wink wink nudge nudge you know where it's not as funny as it should be Yeah, Kurt Russell is playing it 100% straight, which is where the comedy comes from. He's not like, oh, I'm a wacky action star. (laughs) I can't believe I missed. Like, it's like he he brings this intensity to the character or a seriousness to it that I don't think that The Rock would bring. Also, the physicality of The Rock, he is so friggin' big Mm -hmm. that. The, the beauty of Jack Burton was, you know, Kurt Russell's in is a in shape. Don't get me wrong, but he is not rippling with muscles that he looks like one punch could break your face into a million pieces. Mm-hmm. Like 
He's just a trucker. He's just a trucker. He's, like, the part where he's trying to pull his the knife out of his boot and he has that heavy the guard and all his armor. Yeah, I got top. He's stuck for like a minute he, under that he, guy. But you and he, and with a jump out. Ha! <laughs> I love it. But it's like the rock. You couldn't do that with the rock now. Maybe the rock mm. when he was like in, like when he first broke in, he was still a big guy, but he wasn't as jacked. Like it just wouldn't work because mm. it just like. The Rock should be able to, you know, lift my house off the ground for, like, an hour, you know? Mm-hmm. We've all seen him work out. Like, literally in the Fast and Fu- like, um, Hobbs and Shaw, he throws a helicopter with a chain. Guys, he can move a guy in heavy armor. So, I think The Rock does have the comedic timing. I think he would try really hard with this, but it's just, like, it just wouldn't work on so many levels for me. Yeah, here here's my thing with The Rock. I think that these movies that he's in hang over my head like the goddamn Sword of Damocles, where it's just like any second a property that I love could wind up with a Rock remake. But I, <laughs> see, I don't see. I like The Rock though. Like I thought, like the first that, well, I guess not the first, the second Jumanji movie, which is I guess the first one he's in. I genuinely like that movie. See, I like both Jumanji. Movies, I didn't see the, the second one. Is, I can't. I can't comment. I think that the problem is that you 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 can never tell. He's not a sure bet, no. and that's the issue because you might get Jumanji, but you also might get Rampage. And like, well, yeah, I'm he just, picks he picks like his picker is bad too. Like it's like, yeah. but like I like I like like I like Jungle Cruise will eventually come out. Yeah, he sort of looks a little ridiculous in those in the clothes of the, the period piece clothes, but. I'm like, oh, I don't know. That looks like a fun romp. It does, but I'm just not sure. It, this is, you know, it may, I hope that I'm proven wrong, but I think that the character that Jack Burton kind of uh, projects, you have to be able to kind of be willing to be made the fool of. And I don't think that the the Rock, I think, has comedic chops and he's willing to be the butt of the joke occasionally. But for a whole movie where he's playing this kind of inept guy, um, I'm just not sure that he has the he can check his ego enough for that. I mean, you look. I, I think, think that Hobbs and Shaw. No, I think that Hobbs and Shaw is a perfect example in terms of you heard about how he refused to lose a fight to Jason Statham and how it's written into his contract and you know uh, all of these. Uh, the, Marissa and I actually talked about it for the pop break. How both of us felt like the kind of desire to out machismo each other in that movie was very was probably the most realistic thing about it just because of kind of the masculinity which i can certainly appreciate the rock's masculinity i think that it's very impressive and he's certainly buff and macho and very impressive to me but i just don't know that that is who jack burton is. he's not you know and again i think it it goes back to like i was saying like his physicality is Mm -hmm. jack burton's an everyman right he might be a little tougher he's bar tough you know what I mean? You know, <laughs> yeah, you he, want him on your side in a in a bar fight. Absolutely, but. <laughs> but maybe sometimes, maybe not. Like and that's the thing that's great about him is because yeah, he might hit you. Yeah, he might hit you. He might be knocked out in one punch. Like, and that's the thing. But he, the big thing about Jack, like we, like all these negative sort of things about him, and I put that in air quotes because they're also lovable as hell, is mm-hmm. that he's Wang's best friend and will go to the depths of hell to help his best friend even though he says it's because of his truck and because he's owed money no it's because that dude is his best friend he just is not in touch with his feelings enough to be or secure enough in himself to admit that 
for the most part of the movie. He's that's his best bud. He's gonna he's this brother. He loves that guy, so he's gonna right. go fight with that guy. And like I don't know if that's really could be portrayed by someone who's as uh, TV show Spaced once said, someone who's all muscles and guns. You know what I mean? Like someone <laughs> like The Rock. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like right. I do. I don't know who could play that role right now. Mm-hmm. I feel like pre-fame Chris Pratt would be good as Jack Burton. Maybe. Post-fame, post-fame, no, or current-fame, Chris Pratt could not. Yeah, I just, I'm like, just I don't need another Big Trouble. (laughs) No, I was just saying, even if, like, they are dead set, we are gonna do Uh, this. Carl Urban, almost, maybe. 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 But he kind of is already doing that in The Boys. Yeah, who would I, who would I pick for this? This is an impossible casting job, because... You're, it, it's such a it, it's so much of Kurt Russell is imbued into this character that I don't think that any maybe Wyatt Russell Do, that's because, the only you know answer. what I was just gonna say if you've seen Overlord yeah like yeah which I I I loved Overlord I know it's false but like it, he definitely could be he because he he basically was his dad in that movie so it's yeah. like he could do it all right and I would be on board with that. Yeah, I'm settled on Wyatt Russell. By the way, have you ever? I only saw a couple episodes. Did you ever see Lodge Forty Nine? The show he had on ABC. I have not. No. A- AMC. Sorry, it was very going for Twin Peaks type vibe. He was really good in it, and was not anything like his dad. I love Wyatt Russell. He's I think awesome. that he is. Yeah, he's the secret ingredient for movies that uh, are better than they need to be. <laughs> like uh, I do love his his that moment in Twenty Two Jump Street. Yeah, and we're like, oh, it's like a meat cute because it was like the Q-tip, and I was just like, every time that happens, I friggin' cackle because I'm just like, oh my, that's it's so like such a weird phrase, and they just knock it out of the park together. Yeah, he, I mean, he's good in that. He's good in uh, Goon Two, which didn't need to be good, and it is, and he's the best part of that movie. He's great in Everybody Wants Some, that Linklater movie about college baseball. I, I mean, he's really a, a great actor, and so I think that if anyone is going to do it, it's got to be Wyatt. Otherwise, don't touch it. Yeah, because I could see them doing something like, "Oh, Chris Hemsworth, here you go," mm. and I'd be like, "No." I mean, yeah, Chris I Hemsworth say no. could be funny, but again, yeah, we've seen Same him issue. shredded, you know. Yeah, and so now, wow, we're this is going to be a long one, folks. We're forty I, minutes in. I, and I just talk, <laughs> I talk way too much on podcasts. No, hey, this is. I mean, we're getting into it. And I, I, I really do. Outside of the kayfabe of this show, I do really love this movie, and so I'm happy to get to talk. About I like it how you just dropped a old school wrestling reference by calling it kayfabe. Oh, oh yeah, man. I, 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 I used to watch. Hey, you're in you're in South Philly, home to ECW. Come on, we'll start getting into the actual movie now in terms of the the plot of it and. I really like this intro that we get where we get to see Egg Shen. We don't even see Jack Burton right away. We kind of get this like intro prologue kind of thing where Egg Shen is talking to the police about Jack Burton. And he's talking about him like this mythical figure, like a folktale. And I really like that. I think that it kind of adds this larger than life quality to it. It helps to kind of explain away some of the, you know, more outlandish aspects of the, of the movie. Um, We also see that magic is real in this world because he like creates lightning between his hands. What do you think about this intro? I love it. And uh, for most people who don't know, this is like his third movie. Well, fourth movie, I should say. Wow. Yeah, he started acting in 82. 86 was a damn good year for him because he was also in The Golden Child and he was in, uh, well, maybe not so great, um, 
Shanghai <laughs> Surprise, starring uh, Sean Penn and Madonna. <laughs> oh, wow. But then ended up in The Last Emperor, which, you know, won the Oscar for Best Picture. He, this was him starting out, and it's just the perfect way to set up uh, a magical tale. Because it's just like, yeah. here's this old wizard telling you, magic is real, here we go. And, and to me, yeah. I'm just like, I remember watching it for the first time when I was like a teenager. I was like, I was like, yes, thank you, Egg Shen. I am now into this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes right from this amazing intro into we get to see Jack Burton in all his truck driving glory uh, using the CB radio as a diary. And it's, I mean, Kurt Russell is just the best. <laughs> He, he is, man. He's he's a national treasure. I love him to death. I think that his performances are all incredible. I think he's insanely charming. Most people and forget he's also like an OG Walt Disney kid. He was in a movie where he uh, kicked Elvis in the shins. There you go. <laughs> a thing we can all only aspire to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like he's committed to the movies. He actually learned to drive a truck. He spent time in the Arctic for the thing. But, like, you listen to him just cackling on these commentaries, and I defy you not to be in a good mood listening to this guy. Like, he just loves talking with his buddy John Carpenter, and he loves being in movies, and it's just great. And I love Kurt Russell, and I love John Carpenter, and I think that the relationship that they have is so evident on screen in terms of just the fun that all the actors are having. Oh, 100%. And I think one thing, and I'm sure I'm jumping the gun on something you're going to say later, is the soundtrack to this, especially when you when you know you get that, um, I believe in the beginning it's raining and he's in the truck, and you get that you know synth underscore from it, it's just like, oh. Sure, the Pork Chop Express theme. Which was it used to be a Jersey Shore cover band, by the way. And I always wow. made sure I wrote about them because it was just like, Yes, thank you. That and 50-Year Storm, which was a Point Break reference. But regardless, is, yeah, Carpenter's score in this, too, is just, oh, chef's kiss. So good. Love it. It is. And you actually, rarely for him, you get to hear him actually singing on the song that plays over the credits. He is the lowest voice uh, that's singing over it. Oh, it's such a good terrible song <laughs> yeah it's uh it's fun and he's pulling double duty as a vocalist and uh, and synths and you know i i mean i've definitely raved about his music before but it's great and it's very kind of basic but in a way that makes it accessible and memorable to people instead of overcomplicating it so yep. just great stuff and russell said that carpenter's whole goal was to flip the hero and the sidekick and have the bumbling sidekick act all bombastic while the while the capable hero is actually the side guy and i mean i think that they absolutely nail it i think that that's exactly what happens and uh and it's fantastic well originally i was i was doing a little research while you were talking and this was supposed to be jackie chan originally and uh jackie chan for a lot of people don't know is like had a really bad u.s debut he was in two movies, both of which I have seen, and I can assure you, they're both horrible movies. <laughs> One was called The Big Brawl, and it tanked. It was really, really bad. And, like, I want to say, like, Miguel Ferrer, who is um, Lorenzo Lamas's dad, was in it, and he played, like, this 1920s gangster with, like, a big gold earring, and it was so, it was such crap. It was really, really bad. And then he was in a movie with Danny Aiello called The Protector, which was supposed to be this really, like, dead serious action film and Mm -hmm. uh, very blood and guts. And they were awful. 
they're both really terrible introductions. And instead, he went to go. Make, he went back to Hong Kong and made Police Story, which definitely became his uh, better decision. Uh, way better. <laughs> so yeah, very good move by Jackie Chan. Although I think Jack, it wouldn't have worked because Jackie Chan is so comedic mm-hmm. that you needed a guy like Dennis Dunn who can be a little funny, but is dead serious. Yeah, I think that outside of Kurt Russell, the the casting for this movie is pretty spot on. I think that everyone is basically hitting exactly the capabilities that they need to. I think that you're exactly right in that Dennis Dunn is, he's like a funny guy, but he's not like a comedy star, you know? Right, and then that's why, and like, he, he's funny because he says some of his lines, like the, the magic lines he has to talk about are just like, they're ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But he delivers them with such sincerity and such like seriousness like you don't believe this i do this is for real like mm-hmm. this world is real and like they are ridiculous lines and like the way he says mao yin i just it's just like ingrained <laughs> in my brain forever but yeah he's perfect in this role and like i don't think he ever really i mean he's been in a bunch of stuff but he's never really he never broke out although he was in the last emperor as well <laughs> <laughs> and you know he caught the eye carpenter he was in Prince of Darkness, so, you know, he, he got some work. Not Maybe not as much as he should have, but I feel like that's really kind of the uh, carpenter oeuvre is getting these people who, uh, you know, maybe deserved a little more than they actually got. Oh, 100%. So Dennis Dunn is playing Wang, Wang Chi, and Kurt Russell's character, Jack Burton, pulls into San Francisco's Chinatown to stop by and meet him. And this was actually a set in L.A., not shot on location, created by John Lloyd, uh, who also did the thing. And uh, Dean Cundy did the cinematography, so another The Thing alum, further proving the point of Carpenter really consistently using the same people, finding something that works and making sure that he's able to match that consistency. And this set has pretty much been in continuous use since then, including a Janet Jackson music video. So there you go. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So while he stopped, he wins a bunch of money in Pai Gao, and then he goes double or nothing on a bet uh, with Wang Chi involving chopping a bottle in half. And winning these bets, I feel like, is basically one of the few things that Jack is successful at on purpose in this movie. And he does, I mean, this is where we get his initial statement of it's all in the reflexes. He is, it's an incredible catch when this bottle comes flying at his face. Yeah, I mean, um, but you know, for, for, for in, in defense of Wang, everything was going north and south. I mean, he couldn't help it. Yeah, everything, everything was going north and south. Basically, he gets his money and then Wang is like, oh, I can't pay you. So Burton follows it like he he goes with him to make sure he follows through on the payment because he's like, oh, I can't pay you because I need to go pick up my fiance who's arriving from China, Miao Yen. And uh, we also get our first glimpse of Kim Cattrall's character here at the airport. And immediately I love the banter between the two of them as uh, Jack tries to flirt with her. And hell yeah, it's Miller time. I'm a high life man personally, so I, you know maybe she thinks it's an insult. <laughs> See, you know what I say when it's Miller time? I have a Miller time aluminum sign in my basement. Oh, wow. That but that's from the previous owner of my house. They like drilled it into the wall. So I'm just like <laughs> I'm just not good. It's permanently Miller time at the Bodkin house. <laughs> Even though I don't drink it anymore. Yes, it's permanently. <laughs> you know what I say when it's Miller time? Uh, yeah, and then we get the abduction. Yeah, and boy, so there. This uh, this girl that um, Gracie Law uh, is there to meet 
She she's the intended target of this Chinese gang, the Lords of Death. Yes. Fashion icons. Oh god, those sunglasses. <laughs> the sunglasses are incredible and Jack tries to stop them, so they take Miao Yan instead. And as they're leaving in the car, there is just a shot that I truly truly adore when it's just head on as they're all leaving. Really just spectacularly framed. I love it. I think that the Lords of Death are so fun, even though they're on screen for so little of the time. They really feel like uh, they have personality instead of just being like, oh, we need a gang to come in. Oh, yeah. And that's like, I guess if I had one gripe with this movie, it's just like how Lords of Death were there then. Like that. Like Kaiser Soze. Like that. <sighs> they were gone. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely, uh, they could have played a little bit of a larger role, but it is what it is. And, uh, you know, they, they kick things off and they take Miao Yan. And so Jack and Wang are in hot pursuit and we see Egg Shen again, this time in his bus tour guide glory. Very, uh, everyone has these real like working class jobs, which I can really appreciate. I think Len's kind of, uh, that underground quality that they're looking for where like people disappear into kind of the alleyways of this street is kind of you have a truck driver you have a tour like a bus tour guide you have someone who owns a little restaurant like off the side of chinatown you have people who work in these like smaller like on the street level kind of stuff and i think it really lends kind of an interesting perspective to the movie oh 100 percent, because it's like they're all like in america working like especially everyone who lives in chinatown like there's all the american facade but yet they're or like what they're doing in their day life but like the history and especially history of magic that's still very apparent in their town that's still like bubbling underneath the earth literally and figuratively is still there and that the tradition and culture is still there yeah absolutely and uh and so like i said they're they, we see Egg Shen, he's going down a one-way street, and Jack and Wang drive the wrong way down this one-way street, and as you need in any good car chase, they do hit a fruit cart, and it explodes, so nice work, John. <laughs> <laughs> and Jack and Wang wind up tracking the Lords of Death into Chinatown, where they find a funeral procession that quickly erupts into a battle between the Chang Sing and the Wing Kong. To they call them uh, like gangs, but they're like basically these like warrior uh, societies. They're like more than gangs. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's an amazing fight scene. A oh. guy's arm gets completely snapped in half. Oh, they're they're <laughs> fighting like, oh man, yeah. I love how like they light him up, and then there's the one guy who is a bad guy from Die Hard who's in it. He's flipping around a meat cleaver, and then when they light up the um, Chang Sing funeral. All the guys pull out the the bars from the the coffin, and then they all like flip them out, and oh, yeah. they put the finger <laughs> the the finger and the and the thumb out, and they're all ready to fight. And it's, oh, it's so good, so that era of like chopsaki kung fu movies. And uh, there's there's the cameo from my kid, and. Um, <laughs> And yeah, it's so much fun to watch. It's great. And I mean, it's the whole time you see Jack like sitting in his truck cabin with his little uh, his little knife out. <laughs> like you're just laughing. And this battle is going on and then the three storms, thunder, rain and lightning appear. These are the people who uh, Raiden is very clearly based off of. Um they're mighty warriors with weather-themed powers and they just absolutely tear apart the Chang Sing. Jack tries to just, like, drive through and get the big rig through the crowd. 
and he runs over David Lopin there, who's a decrepit man directing the three storms. And uh, he's horrified, Jack. And so he gets out of the truck and finds Lopin there, completely unfazed, glowing with magic, <laughs> just erupting out of his face. And so Wang hurriedly guides Jack through the alleys. And he's like, we just got to get out of here. Jack is like, my truck. <laughs> like, yeah, that he's like, what? Huh? What was that? And then he's like, they're like throwing yeah. water in each other's eyes through the little puddle. <laughs> that whole action sequence is awesome, man. And like, I love how just like, and it's like kind of where we see Jack's character break. <laughs> to realize this whole thing is scaring the crap out of him. Definitely the first, uh, first cracks in the exterior. And Wang takes Jack to his restaurant. They abandon the car or the truck. And he he's, has this great call with his insurance company. <laughs> That I really think is um, uh, overlooked highlight of the film. I, I think that it's really a lot of fun, and it's some of the great dialogue in this movie. And he, we get some background on the groups here and their motivations, thanks to Wang's father and Wang's friend Eddie Lee. This is where we get that great introduction from Kim Cattrall that I mentioned earlier. With "Don't worry, it's only me, Gracie Law," <laughs> and they explain to an incredulous Jack the ancient knowledge and sorcery that the Chinese brought with them to America. And basically, they're like, we need to infiltrate this brothel where Miao Yen is being held because they didn't like they just wanted a girl to sell. And so they grabbed her because they saw she had green eyes, which is very rare for Chinese people. So they're like, all right, Jack Burton, you're going to infiltrate this brothel. All you have to do is act dumb. (laughs) Shouldn't be an issue for you. I always love when she, like, Kim Cattrall's so matter-of-fact about everything. She was like, that's right. I was protecting her rights. Like, I don't know yeah. what it is, but it's just like she's so indignant about it, but so – and I'm just like, perfect. Well done, Yeah, Kim both Cattrall. both of the journalist characters kind of act as, like, exposition dumps, but in a way that totally works for me. I mean, I think that, like, they understand that that is what's happening, and so they – their delivery of it works as like, oh, we know that this is an exposition dump, but we're going to do it in a fun way. So I think that she is great in it. And like we kind of talked about a little bit before earlier, we t- we kind of touched on it. Jack's disguise and acting oh. in this brothel scene is just perfect in its terribleness. <laughs> Swanson's my name and action's my game. One Excitement's my game, I believe. Excitement's my game. That's right. He's wearing that awful plaid suit. What I'm really looking for her is a girl with green eyes. And yeah, I wish this wasn't color. Oh, yeah. Cause, and my favorite line is just like, take off your tie. He's like, yeah, I know. My wife gave it to me. Like, completely <laughs> breaks out of this dweeb character. <laughs> but still delivers such, like, it's still, like, in the vein of that character. But has completely dropped every physical and audio aspect of that. It's a lot of fun. He is doing a little bit of digging, but they're interrupted by the storms coming in, literally tearing off the ceiling. <laughs> and the scene where Jack is trying to fend them off and he punches one of them twice in the face with absolutely zero effect, and then he just smiles weakly at them. <laughs> it's just... Boy, like, I, I feel like half of this podcast is just going to be me going, I like Kurt Russell. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the thing, man. It's just, like, so what it is. Yeah, like, there's this great magical element to it and great martial arts stuff and, you know, all your John Carpenterisms. But it's, like, it's Kurt Russell who sells the movie in it. And it's not unlike how Kurt Russell sold Escape from New York. Yeah. It's, like, you have this amazing premise in Escape from New York, but none of it works. 
if you don't have Kurt Russell in it. And that's what we call star quality. <laughs> I'm thinking, that is called <laughs> acting, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and Miao Yen is kidnapped squared because the storms take her from her current kidnappers. <laughs> so she gets taken to Lopan and... Wang and Gracie and her friend Margot, who works for the local newspaper, and Jack, they find the business front that's used by Lopan. And so they impersonate telephone repairmen to get access. <laughs> Which I love so much because yeah. I my, my shoot job, I like work with repair people. And they just walk in with a goddamn office phone or like, ah, yeah, I got your phone. And I'm just saying, like, and not even wearing, like, there's no disguise. They're wearing exactly what they wore. And Jack with that iconic tank top. Like, mm. it's just, it's awesome. I've always wanted to get your, uh, wanted to get your take on this. Like when they go in, like they basically know what's happening, and they're walking right into a trap, right? Yeah, I I think that that's pretty much how it's supposed to be going down. Uh, they say a couple times that they're like, "Wow, it sure is uh, weird that we're not seeing anybody here." So I think that they're just uh, leaving it open so that they can snap around them. But um, it's a great scene, and I also want to talk about the commentary at this point because. I mean, the whole time, the dynamic between Kurt and John is just fantastic, but it's hilarious here that they spend, like, five full minutes just bragging about their kids, and this commentary was recorded in the early 2000s, and so it's really funny to hear John being like, oh, yeah, uh, my kid's been getting into the keyboards, and now the two of them tour together, and Kurt was talking about why it's hockey team doing well, and he's like, oh, now he's a movie star, and he's the best part of Goon 2, which is a hockey movie, he was highly. He was why it was highly highly touted in the uh, as prospect there as a goalie. I want to say it's just so funny, like that the commentary just devolves into these two dads bragging about their kids. Like it's just these guys are just so fun and they feel so real. Like they don't feel like they're off in Hollywood land. And I think that that independent spirit that John Carpenter has is something that kind of lends to that. And I think that's what's made him all his stuff, like why he's very beloved is because it's just like he, you can see he's a guy who's like one of us. He's a movie fan. And like, you can relate to him more than like other, you know, artistic types or stars or whatever. And it's almost a shame in some respects that we don't get more John Carpenter movies or that he's not directing movies. Although I have to say his game from LA was, it was fine. You know, he had some missteps here and there, but like, Man, I would just love to see one last kick-ass like John Carpenter film. Yeah, it's a shame that it's like because of his vision, and so he feels like he can't do it anymore. And um, but I, I think that Leslie Lee mentioned this, and I, I think that he really hit the nail on the head. That part of what makes John Carpenter so great is that he doesn't have any kind of illusions about the movies that he likes making. Like he's he likes making these action comedy horrors and you know these low budget movies and knowing who he is and what and what his style is lets him really lean into it and fully embrace it and i think that being true to himself attracts people to him and and that is kind of why he's such a a great figure uh, and why people are such big fans of his i agree 100 percent. but meanwhile Eddie and Gracie meet Egg Shen, who they find out is a wizard and a local expert on mysticism and Lopan. And he explains that Lopan was cursed, becoming a demon and immortal, existing only to plague the living. And, like, 
you know, this is what I always say when people are like, oh, yeah, I would love to be immortal. And I'm like, <laughs> immortal immortality is the worst thing you could possibly wish for. Unless you're a Highlander. <laughs> I mean, even if you're Highlander, yeah, I think. Yeah, because there's a whole head chopping thing. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, so you have people chasing you with swords, and uh, you know even if you manage to escape that, what you have to look forward to is the, everyone you love dying and the inevitable heat death of the universe. Yeah, so then you got the quickening, and then we <laughs> go back in time, and all sorts yeah. of bullshit. Yeah, so immortality, <laughs> bad stuff. <laughs> so Lopan is he is indeed cursed with this, and uh, and it's bad stuff, and you kind of get this. It's kind of it's it is creepy. I think that. You find out that he's, like, not really real, but he still has this power to just, like, plague humanity and everything. And has become, a like, basically a multi-millionaire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, he becomes a, a bank owner. Like, he's a CEO of a bank. <laughs> so, doubly a villain. <laughs> uh, political commentary. Hell yeah, that's right. We're not afraid of it on the best little horror house. <laughs> we back with our intrepid duo wang and jack are making progress or so it seems until as you mentioned they the trap springs and they fall into the hell of the upside down sinners which this is i think carpenter's horror bona fides on true display here because this scene freaks me out it is really gross and creepy and like you have just all these mutilated corpses in like floating in the water um, truly horrific. This is, I think, the on top of all the like weird creature shit and body horror. Like this is, I think, the most horrific scene <laughs> in this movie. Up until that point, you, like outside of the low pan mysticism, you know, you really haven't encountered too much. Like, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, it, what is that? Salt water? And like, which I was like that little. <laughs> who gives a it's shit? Like, like yeah, but, he's like, oh, we can't even drink it all. I guess is his, <laughs> it, like. <laughs> So they, so he ends, but all of a sudden you're in this, you're in this freight elevator. Then all of a sudden you look down, and there are these bloated corpses just there, and you're just like, oh my god! Like it's, it's not a jump scare, but it's more of a slap into, hey, shit's about to go down, and this is real, and like, yeah, this is, this wasn't just like, ooh, spooky guy around the corner, you know? Yeah, it's a splash of cold salt water on your face, <laughs> filled with death. Yep, exactly. And they do manage to swim up to the top of it, but they're quickly subdued by rain. And then they're tied up and beaten up by Thunder, who reveals just a Fabio-level head of hair. Like, my goodness. The two of them are tied up, they're put in these wheelchairs, and they meet Lopan. However, he's now also, he's he's an old man in a wheelchair. Understandably, James Hong hated this old age makeup because it was super tight on his face. Sounds awful, but Carpenter was like, "Yeah, he really like knew how to like take that uncomfortableness and put it into his performance, uh, and uh, you know, using it as kind of this like bitterness and anger definitely comes across. So that's that that's called acting, baby. <laughs> I know. And we learn some more about the history of Lopan, and he reveals that although Lopan can temporarily be granted a decrepit body like the one he's in right now, he has to marry a woman with green eyes to appease a god, and then sacrifice her to appease the spirit of an ancient emperor and regain his flesh. So, a real uh, wham-bam-thank-you-ma'am situation in terms of uh, Mrs. Lopan. And Jack and Wang... Are, well, first of all, well, what what do you think about this kind of backstory? Is it do you care at all, or are you like, oh, this is interesting? <laughs> it's like I like the fact that 
that we have this reason. I don't know. I feel like sometimes in horror, it's like so. It's either way too complicated or way too vague. Like the motivations of big bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I like that it's just like to appease appease these gods. I have to sacrifice this woman. And I was like, okay, cool. I got that now. All right, good. Like that. That's an, it, and I like the complication of that later on. Yeah, I, I think that it's just the right amount where it's like it's there if you want it, but it's very it's very easy to kind of ignore this too and just be like, I don't care about that part. Just I'm here for the fun parts. <laughs> so I like the fact that we have stakes. Right. It's th- so it's there for people who want it. I, I think that it is. It is. Uh, it's a. It is an interesting backstory too, and you know, it's not just your typical story it's like this fun he was an ancient warrior and wizard and you know he was incredible fighter and then when he finally lost he was cursed by this emperor and like it's like it's fun it's interesting stuff it also feels like they were like okay we we need something here uh let's make it interesting but not too interesting that people are like oh well i want to dig more into that like it's there as flavor but it's not it, – they're also like, don't worry too much about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It gives some stakes. Like I said, there's stakes in there so you know that like, okay, we have a time limit. You know, it's right. like, okay, the guys are racing against the clock. This is here's, – here's what we're doing. And, uh, and so they're tied back up, Jack and Wang. And there's another interesting conversation in the commentary here that I want to bring up where Kurt Russell talks about how VHS saved his career. Oh, Yeah. I could see that. Yeah, he he says that it's the only place that his movies found any life. And at the point that they filmed this movie, he had filmed a, a pretty serious string of flops. And so people weren't going to see the movies. And when John Carpenter offered this role to him, he was like, I don't want to do it because people are not going to go see this movie if I'm in it. And so Carpenter was like, I don't care. I just want to make this movie with my friend. And I was first of all, I was like, that's adorable. But also, <laughs> but also, you know, Carpenter agrees. He says that uh, he had a similar situation. And I mean, it's easy to see with movies like this and, you know, with movies that are that get the frosty reception that is so prototypical of Carpenter movies. And it's incredible to me that this technology of VHS has such a place in people's hearts and minds because so many people who come through this show talk about going to the video stores and the joy of watching something that you shouldn't be yet or hanging out with your friends or whatever. And it's, it's really magical. And the fact that it helps some of our most beloved actors and directors to sustain their careers in a way that maybe they would not have been able to otherwise, I think is um, something that really bears thinking about for me like i said i taped this movie off tnt so i had the joy of you know fast forwarding through commercials or if you were like fancy and you knew the 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 hack you would press the pause button and hit the play button so you could (laughs) edit the commercials out and try to have a seamless return to action but yeah man (laughs) you always miss it just a little bit or you always get just like that one second of that like burger king kids club ad yeah. <laughs> call now <laughs> yeah, call now and it's just like the logos of the credit cards um, yep. the video store was it was a haven for me man it was yeah. like i would be there like every week with my dad like we would be renting stuff and it, like he, like i got a film edu- like I, I, I got a film education off of that just because he'd be like okay you can rent something you want to see but also, I'm going to rent something you've never seen before. So that was like a lot of Westerns and World War II movies and stuff like that. And like, 
I can still remember, you know, making the mistake in 1995 of renting Pulp Fiction with my dad <laughs> as a 14 year old. So, and uh, yeah, and and so or 13 year old, I should say. And then it's a matter of like you get 20 minutes into the film and your dad's like, "Nope, stop in this movie." So sure, and and then that movie for however many years until you finally get to see oh, it again. Well, like, which oh. again, VHS tape had to tape it off WPIX channel 11. There you go. <laughs> All edited out so it's a very different experience (laughs) on top of you know getting a film education that way you know i can speak for myself only but i know that a lot of people uh, have told me that they had a similar thing where you just go into uh, the video store and you just go that cover looks cool i'll take that one you know and just exploring movies that you knew nothing about because they were just there and having movies that didn't do well you know, we're able to get purchased by these video stores and find a second life. And so shout out to, to VHS stores and, uh, and to VHS as a medium, because it really, it really did have an incredible impact on, I think, film moving forward, the, like as soon as it came out. So, Oh, absolutely. I really, mean, that was, everyone has talked, searched through Netflix for stuff to watch at a time like this. And that was what video stores were, man. It was just like the you got the eye caught by. It wasn't the trailer that caught your eye that does the autoplay when you're looking at a title. It was the cover art. Like it had to grab you. Whether it was like Kurt Russell in, and you're like, oh, I've never watched Tequila Sunrise, for example. I'm gonna rent that. It wasn't good, but like you know, uh, but you know, it's stuff like that where you're like, oh, I, I, you know, I recognize this name, or oh, this is a cool poster or a, a box art. I'm gonna go check it out. I just wanted to point out that that part of the commentary, and and I think that it's cool that Kurt Russell is so appreciative of it as well. And uh, yeah, so their friends attempt to save them, but they're also captured. And when Thunder brings Eddie into the cell, Jack and Wang get the drop on him. And there's this really cool shot where Thunder pushes Jack backwards down a sloped oh, path in his wheelchair. But um, the set was actually built at a tilt, so that was flat ground. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's just some cool camera trickery. And then when he goes to fall backwards into that big well, that was also just a false perspective that they created. It, it's just a tiny little drop. Just really cool kind of in-camera stuff that they managed to create these incredible effects with. Eddie also has one of the great lines. Let's give him a tour. I always <laughs> love that. Because he, again, is, is wearing great. the plaid suit that, like, you know, Jack looked like a dweeb in. And he's also <laughs> trying to impress the reporter. So, ah, just yeah. give him a tour, man. It is great. Eddie is a lot of fun, even though we haven't talked about him that much. He's a great character, too. But, you know, the three of them escape, and they free a bunch of women who are being kept in the holding cells in the process. And... I, I want to point out this really nice bit of characterization when uh, Jack doesn't know how to use the gun. Yes. And he, like, he, he doesn't know how to take the safety off. And then he kills someone. And <laughs> it, he like just looks horrified before putting back on the bravado when they're like, oh, is that the first time you ever plugged anybody? And he's like, oh, what? No, of course not. But like, it was. Uh, it's clear. It's written all over his face. Just a really cool bit of body language uh, that I think is really spectacular. I love it. Like Again, I don't think you could recreate that. No, I agree. Also, another random fun fact from the commentary. Uh, Kurt Russell and Billy Baldwin almost went blind on the set of Backdraft. <laughs> this is, that doesn't surprise me, actually. Yeah, this is when they decided to uh, drop that nugget in. <laughs> so, Oof. And during the escape, 
an arm reaches out and grabs Gracie. That's this that's is an, the part that's another the shit out of me. Oh yeah, this scarred Boy. me for years. Really awful. This monster that grabs her—it's this huge hairy arm. It's kind of orangutan looking, like it's based on the Yeren, also known as the Chinese wild man, the Chinese man monkey, and the Chinese Bigfoot. And it's just horrific. <laughs> There's no other way to describe and this it. This is the why what I, you were like, well, you know, let's talk about a horror movie. I'm like, oh, this. And this is the reason. When I was mm-hmm. a kid, so this is probably like, I, we had HBO when I was young. And this was on HBO. It's PG-13 or roughly. So it's not like, yeah. I could, my dad was like, whatever, you can watch it. And I was like, oh, this is fun. This is fun. This is fun. And that thing happened. And I was like, tears, immediate tears. Like how my daughter is like, he <laughs> could turn on a dime with the tears. That's how fast it came. I was so frightened of this thing. And for years it would always end up on like channel five in New York, in the New York, New Jersey area. And I would be like, Oh, I, what's this movie about again? And I would always turn it to that friggin' thing. And I'd be like, <laughs> Oh God, I forgot. Ah, it's just like the scary, like the, the, the horror and the trauma would come sure. back. Uh, it, it all comes back for a kid. It's just like seeing that thing is if you don't have an adult diffusing that, which my daughter saw and I totally diffused it immediately. And I'm just like, Oh my God, look at that silly monkey, you know? And she's like, and she's like, wow, oh, he does like, he looks like the missing link. You know, we saw that movie, uh, the like, right. and then she's like, Oh my God, he looks like Mr. Link. And so totally fine for me. My dad's just like watching it. I'm like, thanks bro. <laughs> like, thanks for, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for not diffusing that for me. Cause that thing is just like, it's out like, like the elevator scenes out of nowhere. And it's yeah. frightening as hell. Very effective. Um, I think that, yeah, the fact that it does kind of come out of nowhere is part of what makes it so effective. It doesn't, like you said, it doesn't really feel like a jump scare either. But it does feel like it takes you by surprise, which I think is a very slim difference. <laughs> but I think it does exist. And also <laughs> just kind of playing into the whole thing where it's like this storefront is basically barely suppressing the evil in, mm-hmm. in this area. Yeah. And they don't even realize that she's gone. Wang and Jack regroup with the Chang Sing and Egg Shen. And they're like, oh, shit, we have to go back to get not only Miao Yan, but now Gracie as well. <laughs> and as a group... Uh, they enter a cavern to return to Lopan's headquarters, and they're followed by this guardian that we mentioned earlier, who's a floating monster with a giant face with eyes everywhere, including its mouth. <laughs> it's awful. Oh. It's just awful. I have no way to describe it. I've heard people call this thing cute. I cannot agree. Nope. I'm sorry. Nope. nope. <laughs> it's, it's like a beholder in D&D, kind of, but it's a lot more, like, fleshy. <laughs> and, boy, when it opens its mouth and the eye in there just is revealed... It's just awful. Oh, it's and just later awful. when it licks itself. Oh, oh. terrible, terrible, terrible stuff. Um, it looks great, and that's what makes it terrible. Yes. <laughs> and so now that Gracie has been captured, Lopan notices that Gracie has green eyes too, and so he decides to sacrifice Gracie while making Miao Yen his unwilling wife, so that he can have his cake and eat it too. And the lair gets gussied up for the wedding, including the dopest story tall monster skull doorway with neon accents i love that thing like it's the best like how no professional wrestler has never recreated that for an entrance i will i don't foolish i have no idea why it is so awesome and it has an escalator oh god it's so awesome it's just great it's great and there's i mean that's not the only place with neon there's neon everywhere and I really love it. I so I was recently in Austin and there's a bunch of neon there and I was like 
damn, I think I love neon. <laughs> oh, dude. I mean, I haven't worked in the bar industry covering it for like a decade. Like there are certain things with neon that are so cool, especially when you get kind of that retro old school, like outdoor neon mm-hmm, that you only mm-hmm. kind of see in cities. Like that's cool. And like seeing that it's like, it, it, it really vibes with that whole dark aesthetic 80s synth vibe. Mm-hmm. But not like an attacky way, like you would see in like a, I don't know, like in cocktail. Not deriding cro- the movie cocktail because I know it's a beloved chestnut to many. But it's like that neon is '80s tacky nostalgia. Whereas there's like cool neon that I think it exists in the '80s, and that's definitely one of them. Yeah, it's not over. The, it's not too much. Yeah, it's, it's just the accents. <laughs> that skull with the axis, axis is very tasteful. Every family needs one. Don't tempt me. Uh- <laughs> And so the the wedding stuff is happening there, and while they're on their way in, Egg pours uh, each member of the group a potion that Jack says makes him feel kind of invincible, and they God. give just the best toast of all time. Uh, it's uh, here, truly fantastic. I will I'll read the one. That's always my yeah, favorite. Wang says, here's to the army and navy and the battles they have won. Here's to America's colors, the colors that never run. And Jack responds, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. It makes no goddamn sense why they would say it, but it makes nope. all the sense in the world that they would say it. <laughs> it's, it's just a feeling. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's great. It's great. It's It reminds me of... At the end of Rocky Four, when he's giving the "If I can change and you can change, then everybody can change." I mean, the speech, speech then of the Cold War. Yeah, it's exactly. It's, yes. Exactly. I think. Look, I, I'm going to say this on air for the record. I think Rocky Four is the best Rocky movie, including Creed and the original okay. Rocky. Well, I haven't seen Creed. I am behind on certain movies due to childbirth. Not that I gave birth to a child, but <laughs> but yeah, Rocky Four is the best. It is. Every montage needs to be in it. You can't cut any of those montages. Uh, James Brown is in it, doing a whole very long song. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's the best song. There's nothing. You can, it's 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 perfect. <laughs> yeah, I agree, and it's just great. And so this has been a mini review of Rocky Four. <laughs> Rocky Four. End of the Cold War. Great movie. End of the Cold War, and it gives this speech uh, and the toast give similar vibes, and they're both fantastic and. When Jack says that he's feeling kind of invincible, they're in the elevator, and in the commentary, they said that they were all extremely stoned in that elevator. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, they were. <laughs> it's it's funny, too, because I always, like, I'm always focused on Jack, because he's the protagonist, and he's the one who's talking, but, like, when he said that, I, like, went back, and I watched the scene again, and I, like, just watched the faces of the people in the background, <laughs> and, like, it's very funny. I recommend that people keep an eye out for it, but... The group interrupts the wedding ceremony, which breaks out into a battle. And another incredible subversion of convention here. Jack immediately gets knocked out at the beginning of the climactic fight. Yep. Like, just fantastic stuff. I remember being disappointed when I was a kid watching. I'm like, oh, man, he's not going to be in it. Then I'm like, oh, no, that's hilarious. That disappointment, I think, is exactly what they're going for. Where like, this is exactly who you expect. Like, this is time to step up and steal the show. And it's like, no, he's knocked the fuck out. And, you know, he's literally snoozing while Wang is off fighting Rain in this incredible, oh. like, midair fight with swords and shit. And... They said that they used mostly trampolines, not wires, but the way that they're flying around, it's really fantastic stuff. Yeah, and, and like, I love the fact it's practical effects. It's so cool. 
and it's really under like the martial arts in this is very underrated yeah it's a lot of fun we always talk about like 80s action movies a great action sequence everyone points to like they live like the uh, back alley brawl you know which is great and roddy piper is a saint but this i always and there's so much in this sequence especially that and in the funeral sequence i think that kind of gets overlooked by when people are talking about fight scenes yeah i would definitely agree with that and it's fun too because they're not just doing like oh we're gonna punch each other like there's fun like chi power fights between (laughs) egg and lopan and like the best the best part of that it was when lopan basically starts using his fingers like he's hitting like a joist playing a joystick like a video game and, like i'm watching i'm just like oh my god like i do that it's just it's just like i'm just like it's so perfect it's like it shouldn't work but it absolutely does because that's when they create the warriors basically and they're fighting and he's just like you know button mashing in the, in the air button mashing i'm like perfect yeah. it's so perfect because there's still some seriousness in it in the fighting but it's just like that bit of levity because you're not going to see egg and Lopan like fight that would be ridiculous right, right. yeah they're two very old men <laughs> and so this is a way to get them involved in it and still feel like it's within the world and i i, I think it's great and Lopan absconds with meow yen and Thunder follows him, and so Jack flees with Gracie into the elevator to pursue them. And Jack is still feeling the effects of this potion, and so uh, he kisses Gracie, and he gets the lipstick smeared all over his face. <laughs> Anytime I see uh, a couple, like at a wedding, and a woman's wearing lipstick, and she gives him a kiss, or a man a kiss, or, or a woman, whatever, I always think of Jack Burt. I'm always just it's like, great. I'm just like, He's get that person's gonna walk back. Their partner's gonna walk back with lipstick all over their face. I just like, and and only me because I'm like, oh, do you remember Carol? No, it's like way too much to set it up. I'm like, this is for me, guys. This is for this is for old Papa Bear over here. I, I think it's great, and it's this was actually Kurt's idea, and it was revealed in a great transition. They don't just like pull his face back and there it is like kissing and then it cuts and then it's him exiting the elevator and you just get this great entrance with him with the makeup on his face really funny stuff and then wang joins them in this pursuit of meow yen and lopan and he distracts thunder while jack and lopan fight and this is where we get the payoff for that great it's all in the reflexes jack it's a very fun knife scene where he completely botches the first throw. <laughs> it's really bad. It's awful. It's like when uh, 50 Cent threw the first pitch out. Oh, <laughs> like, God. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> he, he botches this first throw, goes completely off to the side. Lopan is he's laughing. He picks it up. He throws it back at him. But Jack catches the knife and whips it back. Nailing him right in the head. Indeed, it is all in the reflexes. This is such a fun way to really cement it. And also, it's nice that it is something that Jack did. You know, all this time, I've mentioned before that I like that he's bumbling and that he screws all this stuff up. But there's no denying that this is something that Jack does. Very triumphant for him. It's a great kind of capstone for him to really have done something important in this story instead of just being a bystander yeah absolutely you know he he needed that there had to be a payoff for jack he couldn't keep fumbling his way through things and it would have been bad if it would have been like inspector clouseau accidentally solves the whole case it was like this is one thing jack does good 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like exactly. he can throw, he can catch that nut. Like he, can, <laughs> he has reflexes. Yeah, exactly. It, it really works. And Thunder, who had been off distracted with Wang, reappears and just it purely enraged at finding Lopan dead, bloats up and explodes. And <gasps> I, I mean, this is a close second for me in terms of just like the most horrific scenes in this movie because the way that he balloons up is. It just makes me so uncomfortable. I don't know what it is about it, but he just literally blows up like a balloon and explodes, and it makes me very nervous for some reason. Well, the part where like his eyes start bugging out of his head, he gets so big. It's so mm-hmm. crazy. It's just like you're yeah. watching. You're like, oh my god! And it, and it's it's it should be cartoony, and it is. But it, there is a definite element of just like. Oh, this is dangerous. This is bad. They got to get out of there because uh, he will blow up because you see him pull the knife and you're like, okay, he's going to explode. They got to run. And that's exactly what they do. But Jack, Wang, Gracie, and Miao Yen are cornered by lightning in a corridor who triggers a collapse with his powers. And Egg rescues them with a rope and lightning is, is climbing up after them. And Egg just drops a stone Buddha statue on him, which I was like, damn, that is fucking cold, Egg. <laughs> like, oh. to just straight up brain this guy? I didn't think he had it in him, but he, he sure did. <laughs> hey, man, don't ever mess with Egg. He's feisty. That's right. And they find Jack's truck, but they're still being chased by the Wing Kong guard. And Kurt almost got really hurt here because there's a squib that blows up as he's running uh, past the wall towards his truck. And it blew up a little too early. And it's just so funny listening to Kurt Russell cackling about almost dying. (laughs) (laughs) He's something else, man. And the group, they burst out and they're celebrating their victory in the restaurant with all the rescued women. Wang and Miao Yen are preparing to marry. Eddie has uh, paired off with Margot, who we heard had a crush on her. And Egg is setting off for an overdue vacation that he had promised himself. Jack says you should go to China, and Egg says that China is in the heart. (laughs) And I'm like, fuck yeah. Which is a little bit like um, uh, a callback to earlier when they said, uh, when Wang says China is here. Mm -hmm. and. Or, or is it Wang or is it Egg? It says China is here. And <laughs> Jack is freaking out. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that this is Egg saying that that's what it means, is that China is in the heart. And this mysticism followed them because it's it's part of their people. And it's, it's a nice little moment for Egg. And Gracie offers to join Jack in his travels. But Jack decides to keep on trucking alone. But you never can tell when you're going to see him around. And uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's another great subversion when Margot is like, aren't you even going to kiss her goodbye? And he's just like, nope. Puts on his hat all cool. <laughs> just like, wow. I, I feel like that definitely was something that was done in the Western script. Mm-hmm. Because that is such a Shane cowboy thing. It's just like, yeah. ride off into the sunset, leave the lady in town. No responsibility to anyone but to quote unquote save the day or for jack just to drive something to another area that's right and uh he does he drives off into the night but he's talking on the cb radio once again telling this tale but unbeknownst to him the yeti survived the battle and is stowed away on his truck dangling perfect setup for a sequel or something or just as a fun little cliffhanger because like i said i don't really want a sequel maybe once upon a time but it's a a super fun little ending it has this kind of mysticism following him where you're like oh he could get into some more hijinks kind of thing i think it's a really great ending what do you think about it 
I, I love it. I was also thinking about sequels for a second. It was like, we even saw Kurt Russell do Snake Plissken again in Escape from L.A., which was the first CD I ever bought the soundtrack. Wow. And yeah, I had a, Rob Z- a White Zombie song on it. I used to be a big fan. Uh, and the magic wasn't there. So I, I just can't, like I said, I don't think a sequel ever would have worked because it, yeah. sometimes one time is all you need. It, it's just the perfect ending. It's, it's Jack, you know, it's just like, dude's got no luck, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, he did save the day, but now he's got a beast. He's got to fight. I don't think we ever need to see him fight the beast because right. that's not the point. Like, it's not the point of him being a monster fighter because he obviously was terrible at it. He just, <laughs> by pure luck. Killed Lopan. But it's perfect. It's like the womp womp, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, ending for Jack. And it's just the, yeah. it's the perfect way to do it. And I've probably watched this movie 50 times. Wow. Well, because it was like, I, w- I would just watch it. <laughs> the beauty of VHS, sure, yeah. going I, back I, to VHS, just one summer I became obsessed with it. And I would watch it like every day and anytime it's on. And the cool thing was like, I didn't actually know anyone who liked this movie for the longest time or even had seen the movie. And when I started dating my wife, she was like, oh, my God, like, I grew up on this movie. I love this movie. And so I'm just, like, probably going to marry this woman. Um, so <laughs> That's how you know. Because, That's the litmus test, everyone. <laughs> yep. So anytime it's on, she'll even put it on. And I'm just like, oh, I can't, I can't love you anymore. <laughs> like, so it's um, – but it's – yeah, it's just, like, I, I can never turn away from this movie when it's on. It's just, like, it's a blanket. It's a warm cup of cinematic soup. Like, it really is. It's just, like, you're having a bad day. You can throw that on. You always, I always get a good chuckle out of it. can always find myself in gross that I'm not look, looking at my phone while it's on in the background. You know, it's, it's just a super fun movie that – because it's got a little bit of everything. I think that this is a perfect segue into us talking about why this is the best horror movie ever made. Just a quick little summary of why we think that. And you – it seemed like you were kind of leading into that already, so I'll let you go first. Um, just give us like a quick uh, – quick summary of why this is the best horror movie ever i mean two words jack burton but it no in all seriousness it's i think this is the best horror movie of all time to me is because it's so many things at once because you can watch it so many ways can you watch it as a straight comedy absolutely can you watch it as a straight fantasy horror film i think you absolutely can can you watch it as a martial arts film absolutely can you just watch as a running gun action pick Absolutely. I, there's few horror movies I feel like, and I'm like I said, I'm not the master of horror, but like there's very few movies I think they can do that, where you could watch it as a different genre every time, depending on your mood. And that's why I, what I think makes it a great rewatchable movie. And the horror still sticks up. It's like it, those effects from 1985, 86, they still really hold up. And when they're adapted mm-hmm. to like Blu-ray and stuff in HD, wow, they look even better. And, like, there's always that aura of no matter how funny this movie is or how many thrust kicks are thrown, like, there's still, like, this very creepy vibe. And I always forget that one scene. I forget every single time where they're in the underworld and that beast just comes out of a tunnel. Yeah, the bug? Yeah, the bug just comes out, takes a guy. And I'm I'm always like, oh, Jesus Christ, I totally forgot that happened. You know, like, and, like, there's always, like, a a jump in there. And there's always something in the air just very creepy about those films. And a lot of that has to do with the world building, which is fantastic. And also, Carpenter's score. He really never lets you forget there is something sinister going on. Uh, I agree. So I think that this is the best horror movie ever made. Uh, To sum it up, I'll, I'll quote Kurt Russell himself. At the end of the commentary, he says, it's not for everyone. And I think that's cool. And you know what, Kurt? I think that too, man. I I think that there are some people who they don't like the comedy parts of it. And there are some people who they don't like the horror parts of it. But to me, this is a classic Reese's, you got comedy in my horror, you got horror in my comedy, two great tastes that taste great together. I think that it's perfect. I think that 
because it couldn't be pulled off by anybody besides Kurt Russell and John Carpenter. When when you find something that is so perfectly aligned with its creators, that is part of what makes it a masterpiece. This is two people working together. They had this incredible relationship and they work towards this greater goal. And they made this incredible, incredible movie. It has incredible performances. The effects look great. The story is great. The dialogue is great. Everything is great. Kurt Russell just being this charisma machine, just just pumping out charm that is undeniable. And I mean, at the end of the day, there are plenty of horror elements in it that I feel comfortable calling it a horror movie. And for people who can't look past the comedy parts of it, honestly, I feel bad for them because this movie is so fun and it still does provide those scares. And to me, that makes it the best horror movie ever made. Bill, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. This was so much fun. I love talking about this movie. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell the people where they can find you? Well, if you, if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, I am at BodkinWrites, W-R-I-T-E-S. Uh, I'm mostly just talking about wrestling and retweeting stories I do on, uh, from thepopbreak.com. But every day, find, you know, I write for, I run, I've co-founded 10 years ago, thepopbreak.com. George is a regular contributor on the site. He always does a fabulous job. And so check out thepopbreak.com every single day. We do stuff on movies, TV, music, comic books, pro wrestling. Uh, find us on Twitter at popbreak.com, all spelled out forward slash popbreak.com all spelled out on Facebook at the pop break on Instagram. Look for the breakcast on Apple podcasts and on SoundCloud. And I'm start. I'm in a new series of sponsored by powered by the popbreak.com called socially distanced podcast, which is now available on Spotify. Uh, it's myself and our managing editor, Al Manorino. We have uh, guests every week talking about different things in pop culture. George will eventually be a guest, uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, man, this was a lot of fun. But, yeah, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, so I'm very happy to uh, talk about this with you. Definitely check out all those things. It's been a, a great joy writing for the Pop Break, and I've also made a couple appearances on the Breakcast, so you can look for me on there as well. For my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at Gerg Hef. You can find the show on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. That username also applies to Instagram and Facebook. And uh, there's merch that you can go buy if you feel like buying merch. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Leave us a review if you're enjoying the show. That's it. So great. Thanks again, Bill. This was a lot of fun. And uh, to everyone else out there, you know, enjoy your ride on the Pork Chop Express. <laughs> Bye. Bye.